A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So I don't know about the rest of you. I have yet to meet a single person who had a good New Year's. Like, it's ranged from catastrophically bad to meh, I'm glad 2021's over. But like, I don't know anyone who's like, oh man, I had an amazing week. New Year's was awesome. I'm jazzed for 2022. I'm super pumped. I mean, mine was fine. I don't I don't have any complaints. I had a friend over for a late drink while our kids screamed upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> I, I watched television and then I went to bed at like 9.30. So there you go. That is the way to do it. I like, I, I will say, I'm, I'm with you, Quinta. I like to do... Um, I like to I like to celebrate New Year's on Fiji time. <laughs> Though it, it also does occur to me that I, I guess you guys had this conversation with Ben last week. I just refuse to accept that anyone sat in my seat, as it were, in rational securities. I'm just like pretending that last episode didn't exist. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think of I think of you and Ben as having kind of a looper relationship where he's kind of the future <laughs> you. So I literally put him in place of you. That's both the nicest and meanest thing you've said to me in a so, long, long time. But no, that means that you're played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Exactly. And I told Ben, if he ever finds like gold bars duct taped to his back to run, <laughs> stay away from that. Stop visiting Minnesota because that's not going to end well. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. The Good, The Rational, and The Secure. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are here with our first three-peat, repeat customer, uh, slash co-host, slash guest, Lawfare Executive Editor, Natalie Orpit. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, team. Thanks for having me. I must say, you have stepped up your podcast game because I see you have crammed yourself into a closet in your parents' house. I see blankets hanging from the walls, all the signs of a true podcast professional, meaning you've taken all your plush objects and stapled them to the walls around you. I like it. Yeah, it's sort of like a grown-up pillow fort that has a justification, and I think I'm going to leave it up here for posterity. Yeah, do not let your parents take that down. You don't know when they're going to be back. Not just a grown-up pillow fort, one might even say kind of like an insane asylum. I think there's something there that all good podcast rooms look, they're like padded and there, there's, some, there's, some deep, there's some deep inside here, I'm sure. I mean, when you're, na- when you're narrating a podcast dedicated to January 6th, I think this is just a safety precaution. And I will say putting me in a straight jacket made me be the only way to get me to stop clipping my mic occasionally with my hands as I wildly gesticulate over the course of our conversation, which I know is Alan's number one pet peeve. <laughs> Please tweet at us if you want me to send Scott a straight jacket. I will do it if I get enough tweets. Think about it. I think about it. I like being cozy. I could see it working out. Who knows? <laughs> Just a really, really thick slanket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we are excited to have you with us here, Natalie, as we delve into the Almaty Tuhati edition, because over the last <laughs> week or so, everyone's favorite Kazakh capital has seen a lot of action and been in the news a little bit more than many have expected. But of course, it's not the only national security news story this week, and we're going to get into a number of them with you, Natalie, as well as you, the listeners. First up, topic number one, what's Almaty with you, huh? <laughs> 
Scott, that was so good on paper, and the delivery just fell. I thought the flat. delivery amped it up a little bit. No, no. <laughs> da, 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 da. I don't know da, what da, da, da. accent sounds like, but I'm pretty sure that was not. That was kind of Italian. All right, well, whatever. We're close. We're close there. What's Almaty with you? How's Italian? How's Italy and Kazakhstan close? It's what's the matter, you, huh? What's the matter, you? Yeah, Going no, I, okay, okay. I will say, as someone who watched a Sopranos episode last night, there's something there, but it seems like a little bit of a stretch for a topic about Kazakhstan. Well, regardless, <laughs> Russia recently. <laughs> Russia recently. <laughs> Sorry. We just took all the steam out. <laughs> Russia recently deployed forces to nearby Kazakhstan to aid an allied government in putting down a popular uprising. Will this have ramifications for the possible conflict brewing over Ukraine? And what does it say about Russia's regional strategy? Topic two. He's talking about Voldemort, right? Last week, President Biden commemorated the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with some strong words for his predecessor without ever actually naming him. Does this signal a strategic shift in how Democrats are taking on threats to American democracy? And is it a good one? Topic three, Facebookaloo. The sister of a police officer killed by a member of the far-right Boogaloo Boys is suing Meta, the newly renamed parent company of Facebook, for promoting the group's content and connecting potential members through its content algorithms. Could this represent a way around Section 230 protections? And what could the ramifications be for other social media platforms? Quinta, let me hand it over to you for our first topic. Sure. So there has been uh, quite a lot of activity in the former Soviet Union and its outposts recently in both Kazakhstan and Ukraine. So in Ukraine, listeners may recall, we discussed recently, there was a pretty significant buildup of uh, Russian presence along the Russian-Ukrainian border, which raised a lot of concerns that Russia might have been planning uh, invasion of Ukraine, something that would have raised real problems for a number of people, not just Ukrainians, um, because it, it also implicates the question of what the United States and NATO might do to respond. So Russia um, and the United States are now having talks about what is going to happen. It seems like they're maybe not moving so quickly. Both parties seem to be saying that, you know, they're they want to be at the negotiating table. They're having useful conversations, but it doesn't seem like anything has come out of these weeks of conversation so far. Then uh, further to, to the east and the north, Kazakhstan is undergoing a really pronounced period of, of civil conflict. So this is for listeners who, who maybe are not familiar, um, one of the largest countries in, in the world. It's directly to the south of Russia and sort of sits on top the rest of Central Asia. And there were really sudden and striking protests in the country initially over what seemed to be rising gas prices and perhaps public frustration with corruption in the nation's leadership that then turned pretty violent when the government pushed back against them. There were nationwide internet outages. Russia ended up sending, I think, about 3,000 troops um, who now uh, the Kremlin has said are set to leave the country now that they've accomplished their their peacekeeping mission. So there are a lot of different questions that are raised by both of these topics. We've kind of sandwiched them together because, of course, they they both touch on you know happenings that have to do with Russia. But I want to be a little bit provocative here and suggest that they may actually be pretty distinct. And what I mean by that is that, of course, 
the Ukraine conflict directly implicates the United States and the West in a, a really immediate way. I mean, I think one of the main Russian demands in these negotiations is that Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO um, and that NATO pull out from Eastern Europe. So it really directly touches on relations between Russia and the West. In Kazakhstan, on the other hand, there's been a lot of reporting about how, you know, what this says about Russia's influence in Kazakhstan and Russia's near abroad. But I think there's also a lot of indication that to some extent, this is about domestic political unrest in Kazakhstan and jockeying among the Kazakh elite. Uh, the New York Times had a really interesting article about how it seems like the pro the protests are legitimate, to be clear. It's, they really did begin, it seems, over uh, frustration with fuel prices, but that it may have been a faction controlled by or loyal to the former president, um, and I think his formal title is Father of the Nation, Nazarbayev. Um, who's the former leader of Kazakhstan and the current president of Kazakhstan. And they're kind of using this as an opportunity to duke it out. So I guess to start off, my question is, you know, am, am I right there or am I, am I just being provocative in sort of splitting these two in, in the framing? Scott, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts. I actually completely agree with you in that I think people sometimes read these two items as having too much in relation to each other, seeing the Kazakhstan uh, issue solely through the lens of Ukraine and and to some extent vice versa, which I don't think that's quite right. But I do think there are some connections here, just not maybe the dominant ones driving either sort of scenario. In the Kazakhstan side of the equation, I think that's notable for Ukraine uh, and the dynamics around Ukraine, primarily because it's a demonstration of some of the costs which come with Russia's efforts to establish and maintain a kind of sphere of influence around these client states is kind of overselling a little bit, but to some extent, client states around the sphere of influence around nearby states. You know, this is a case where you've got major economic unrest leading to political arrest and to maintain an allied regime at the regime's request, they have to send in troops. Now, it looks right now like this has been somewhat successful and relatively cheaply accomplished, although I think it may be a little bit early to say how enduring um, this reestablishment of the regime will be. The fact that they put down this round of protests doesn't mean they'll put down the next one. Um, there's also this question as to how long Russian troops will be able to stay there. Kazakh authorities have said that the Russian troops, and it should be noted a couple other governments contributed troops to this effort as well that are allied with Russia, would be leaving the next few days. Russia has, by most media accounts that I've seen, been less committal about that and said we'll hang around as long as necessary to accomplish the objective of securing this sort of environment. But you know, it just underscores that when you are trying to maintain these relationships with a variety of states like Kazakhstan or Belarus has been the news recently, and a number of other states Russia has a relationship kind of like this, you know, fortifying and supporting these leaders that are Russia leaning even against popular opposition. It's costly for them. And then you add that into the possibility of a major ground war in Ukraine and extended occupation against a fairly mobilized, unified, well-armed, and increasingly well-trained Ukrainian national military, that is certainly going to lose to Russia, but doesn't mean it can't make a conflict painful to them. I do think it maybe underscores a little bit um, some of the costs that come with that sort of effort. On the Ukraine side, I will say I think the most notable part is that actually 
the Kazakhstan situation never really came into the negotiations quite expressly. Actually, when you asked U.S. officials engaged, I think Wendy Sherman was the most senior official in the most recent meetings. She said, essentially, look, I didn't bring it up and it wasn't raised. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think it's a point where uh, the U.S. delegation doesn't want to try and pull that in to feed into narratives that could arise without saying, oh, this is Western influence, Western interference, something along those lines, and let it hang out there as saying, like, look, this isn't always so easy. You've got some problems in your own backyard. Do you really want to take on this added burden of this Ukraine conflict? And I will note, I mean, I read the negotiation the last few days and the readouts we've gotten both the Russian and the US sides as suggesting that they're both entering into a process. Both are skeptical of the other party's intents, but both say, well, we're entering into a process. Russians said, we have no intent of invading Ukraine unless pushed to do so by the Americans. Americans saying, Russians need to stop aggravating the situation. But both are saying, we're committing to this process. That's the goal of this stage of negotiations, is to say, we're going to take our political conflict and we're going to put it into a political process that can aim towards resolving. As long as that process is ongoing, the situation on the ground's harder to escalate. Uh, and so on that, from that extent, it seems like successful and that they're giving a bit of an off-ramp potentially that the Russians might be walking down. I think it's too early to reach draw any firm conclusions, but that's that's my sense of the state of affairs in these two things as of the developments this week. Yeah, Scott and Quinta, I, I think I agree with both of you that these are not super related. I mean, I think most obviously because in the case of Kazakhstan, I mean, one, Russian involvement is on the invitation of the current regime. Uh, which obviously is very different than the situation in Ukraine and the kind of disputed Eastern Ukrainian territories, but also that there's no one on the other side of Kazakhstan that is any way positioned like Western Europe and the United States, right? Like, you know, U- Ukraine is between Russia and NATO. Kazakhstan is, my geography is not very good. I'm sure it's between Russia and someone, but it's not between Russia and a, a large uh, multinational um, defense alliance. And, and, and I also think that, that, Russia can more plausibly argue that you know what what it's doing is not only squarely within its own interest, but is you know in the interest of regional stability in a way that obviously can't do so about Ukraine. I, I do wonder um, what the effect of the current situation in Kazakhstan will be on the Russia-Ukraine situation. I mean, I, Scott, I, I do think fundamentally you are right in in that it is coming at a pretty good time for Ukraine because it is a reminder to Russia that like, look, you know, your the, the longest land border literally in the world, right, which is between Russia and Kazakhstan, may or may not catch back on fire at any moment. Do you really want to deal with with two large land-based crises on, you know, either sides of your of your country at the same time? Uh, though, at the same time, if the Kazakhstan situation resolves quickly and Russia can spin that, whether externally or in particular internally, um, if Putin can spin that to his population as an example of how Russia's back, Russia's a major player, look at these amazing things Russia can do, uh, maybe that gives him at home more political leeway to be more aggressive on Ukraine, which then leads to the question of, well, what is it that he wants? You know, I, my assumption has has always been that that he doesn't really want anything in particular. Um, he just wants to continue being a chaos Muppet in Europe because it, you know, he, he likes it. It's good for his popularity, you know, for, for a variety of other reasons. And, and, you know, I'll be curious how this uh, manifests in these current negotiations because, you know, when you look at them from the outside, they do seem somewhat irreconcilable, right? I mean, Russia's main stated objective is to get an ironclad guarantee that NATO will not expand into Ukraine and that generally NATO will stop functioning as NATO functioned, which is a American and Western European and Central European alliance against Russia. And the Americans have said that is categorically off the table. So if that's the the dip, 
diplomatic posture, right, that both sides are coming to, that doesn't suggest that we're going to have a good outcome. And yet, as Scott pointed out, we seem to be having a pretty good outcome. Everyone's talking, everyone's calm, you know, everyone's making the right faces, everyone's smiling, um, you know, more or less. And, and so I do wonder if the ultimate resolution of this will simply be that no one says anything, everyone gets to claim victory, we continue the strategic ambiguity, and, uh, you know, Ukraine just continues to exist as this, you know, buffer, buffer zone. Uh, this reminds me of something Dan Quayle once famously said, which is that the geostrategic role of the Middle East is to keep the Near East and the Far East from encroaching on one another. Uh, one of his many uh, gaffes. This may be one of my favorite. Um, it, it is sad for Ukraine that that does appear to be the consensus that's happening, that Ukraine's geostrategic role, um, as far as the rest of the world is concerned, is to you know buffer between NATO uh, and Russia. And that's, uh, I think, a bummer place to be for any sovereign nation. Also true in World War II, to its detriment. Very much to its detriment. Yeah, my take on this is I agree that it is that these two issues are not super related in the sense that one is inextricably linked with the other. But I do think that there are themes that we're seeing that are indicators of what Russia's foreign policy is and is going to be. And I also think that part of the messaging that Russia is giving on both sides and part of the messaging that is coming out of the U.S. represents somewhat consistent strategies. And it makes sense to look at them with knowledge of the fact that these two things are going on simultaneously. And so um, many of the messages may have a double meaning for actors in each of the conflicts. So one thing I thought was interesting that didn't get a whole lot of attention was the fact that the um, Russian incursion into Kazakhstan was under the auspices of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is a thing about which I was unaware entirely. I am not an expert in this region, so apologies to listeners. But I thought that was interesting. It's the first time that the provision on protection has been invoked, um, which, as an aside, I sort I found um, pretty ironic given Russia's historical position on sovereignty and respecting sovereignty of other nations and the Security Council that has led it to object to all sorts of other types of invasions by other countries or UN forces. But anyway. So, you know, I don't know to what extent we should read the fact that Russia took action in this case under that treaty and under a specific provision as an indication that it's trying to flex the possibility of a regional counter to NATO specifically that is not a, this is just Russia engaging unilaterally in former Soviet states as a representation of its desire to just reinstate the Soviet Union, or whether it's that's just sort of incidental. That I am unaware of that organization being implicated at all in the Ukraine situation, but that's also to be expected because Ukraine isn't a member. But in any case, I think that, you know, should the fact that in Kazakhstan, Russia engaged under the auspices of that organization be seen as part of what Russia is communicating with respect to its demands about NATO not not expanding too far eastward, I don't think it's impossible. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting aspect of this is is the invocation of this kind of treaty regime, which is line-laden for so long. You know, I think the best explanation, frankly, is just a framing mechanism. Like, there's no reason, even under international law, why Russia on its own couldn't go in at the invitation of the Kazakh government to do this so long as it acted consistent with Kazakh's human rights obligations and other international legal obligations, like collective self, the same collective self-defense. It's like an invitation, not a violation of sovereignty if you come at the invitation of the host government. So the treaty is like not necessary, though, but it clearly is was intended by design and I think is here being pulled out to try and provide some sort of parallel to NATO to say we can also organize regionally. But really, as an exercise, I think it really underscores the weakness of Russia's position because here's a case where it's alliance, quote unquote, is entirely reliant upon it, even to manage its own their own internal affairs in comparison with NATO, where the United States provides strong security backgrounds, but each government is sovereign, independent, has its own military capacity, its own internal governance capacity, don't really do stuff like this at all in terms of intervening to manage their internal affairs, at least not that I can think of in any recent uh, history. So, you know, it, it's, it's I think, it may be a failed exercise to draw that rhetorical sort of parallel. I will note, I think it, it fits in, though, with a lot of anxiety Russia has about how it sells itself. And one notable exchange that happened here, Secretary of State Blinken at one point said, well, you know, those Russians, in response to a question about this in a press briefing, said, you know, those Russians, sometimes when you invite them in, it's hard to get them to leave. And the Russian foreign ministry responded, says, well, you know about Americans, when you let them in the house, they will, it's hard to let, get them out without them murdering and raping you. That's a direct quote <laughs> from the Russian foreign ministry. That, that feels like an escalation. That feels like an escalation. Just a tad. That feels, that feels, perhaps, that feels uncalled for. It seems like they may be a little sensitive around this point. <laughs> That's some North Korea level rhetoric. <laughs> it was exceptional. Why really thought that? I was like, wow, we're really in this sort of zone here. But I think there's a lot of rhetoric and posturing all around the Russian position of this about trying to project strength that's reinforced by you know the fact that they don't actually have much critical engagement uh, of their policy domestically. To some extent, they're also tapping into these narratives about concerns uh, among the kind of like left, political left in the West that's always been about worried about NATO expansion, worried about that being too perceived as offensive on the Russia's part, and are playing into that rightfully or wrongfully. I mean, I think there's an element of that that's true, an element that um, might be exaggerated, but I think there's a lot more message and messaging and spinning happening around here than the, even the military side of this. And as we go along, we're going to see those narratives really compete more. And I think this fits into that. So moving from turmoil abroad to turmoil at home, I feel like I can use this segue every week. I feel like basically every between section one and section two of our podcast segue is the world is terrible outside the United States, but don't worry. It's pretty bad inside the United States. Let's talk about that next. Things suck everywhere. That's why there's no excuse to not doing segues. (laughs) (laughs) Use the same one every week. I've been doing them. You have. You have. And I appreciate it. It's a bummer outside the house, but the call, as it turns out, is also coming from (laughs) inside the house. So let's talk about January 6th, the second year. So as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, last week was the first anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And to mark that event, uh, President Biden gave a um, highly publicized, I'd say, major speech. I I think it's fair to say it's the most important speech he's given of his presidency, um, though we, we can talk about that, in which really for the first time, he aggressively and angrily placed the full blame for the events of January 6th on President Trump and his enablers in Congress. Uh, Though, interestingly, he never once said President Trump uh, by name. And I'm curious what the 
kind of rhetorical strategy there was. There's a lot to talk about in this, uh, especially in terms of what happens next. Um, but I do want to start by talking about the speech itself and what people thought about it, whether speeches matter at all in our society and in our polarized and gridlocked climate. Um, I personally found it quite cathartic, um, but I'm one of these very online people, as the rest of you co-hosts uh, are as well. So uh, mine might not be very representative. L let me start with you, Quintus, since you are basically our in-house literary and a rhetorician theorist. What do you think about the speech? Wow. Well, now I now I feel like I really have to perform well. I thought it was a good speech. I think Biden is not a strong speaker, necessarily. He tends to just kind of flub his lines a little bit. He doesn't, you know, inspire crowds to rise to their feet in the way that Obama did. But I thought it was a very strong piece of rhetoric and the move from speaking about democracy in the abstract, which is what he's sort of been doing before, to specifically laying the blame at Trump's feet, I think is an important one. And signals that he's kind of acknowledging a lack of responsiveness within the Republican caucus in Congress to the problems that he's setting out. I do think that the decision not to name Trump was really interesting. I mean, it often in terms of Biden's relationship with Trump, I, I often think about this really striking moment that took place during one of the presidential debates where Trump I can't remember what it was he said, but he'd gone on some completely bizarre rant and Biden just, you know, when when it was his time to answer, didn't look at Trump, didn't engage with him, just turned directly, like looked directly into the camera and essentially said something that I can't remember the specifics, but was more along, along the lines of like, get, can you get a load of this guy? He doesn't care about you at all. And that that is kind of the rhetorical mode that he's been engaging with. He's now moved to more directly you know, addressing Trump again, but he's still he's still sort of boxing him out of the speech of politics, right? And I think that is a powerful statement to make without invoking him by name. I mean, the big question in my mind is what comes next, right? The the problem I think is that, you know, we we hear these speeches and President Biden spoke about the the dagger at the heart of democracy, I think, is the language that he used. And so the natural question is, OK, and then what? Right. Like, what are you going to do about it? And the answer seems to be negotiate a way to carve out exceptions to the filibuster with Joe Manchin, question mark. Right. Um, I mean, the the scale. I'm glad that the White House is speaking about the the direness and the scale of the problem in the way that it is, but it also feels like they're saying that and then perhaps not quite acknowledging that they have a really limited toolbox in responding to the set of problems that are before us. So I don't know. I think, though, I agree that it was interesting that he didn't mention Trump. One thing that struck me is he actually did speak about Trump in somewhat more personal terms than he has in the past. So he had a line about uh, he's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interests as more important than his country's interests and America's interests, and because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our constitution. So that's more personal than he has typically been. And it's a little bit different than the sort of Obama era, when they go low, we go high. It's not 
anything approaching the sort of rhetoric that certainly came from Trump or is currently coming from a lot of Republicans. But it it was, to me, a notable departure from from previous speeches. And I'll just say on the other question of whether this matters, I think it does a lot because I think that a lot of the country is not as online and is even to the extent they are online, they're online about totally different stuff. And when the president speaks, it's going to be covered by everyone. And it's going to be on the amount of news that people consume, even if they are not all that interested in political news. And so it's a, it's important to speak up and speak out. Um, it may seem, if you spend a lot of time thinking about and listening to statements that are coming out of various leaders in the Democratic Party and or people who are just trying to push back on Trumpism, it may not seem all that dramatic, but I think the fact of it is very dramatic. I'll, I'll say I, I generally agree with that. I think it's a notable move for the simple reason that the bully pulpit is the most powerful means of communicating that any politician has in our country. And to not use it to fight misinformation, which is what I actually took to be the, the main thrust of Biden's speech, or perhaps the most effective thrust of it, um, is just a huge opportunity lost. Um, I think it runs a little counter to traditions of presidential decorum, which is, I suspect, why Biden chose not to name Trump, to try and thread the needle there a little bit, to criticize him quite strongly um, while, while maintaining that little bit of symbolic distance, um, which may itself go away at some point. But I think it's a good thing that, you know, the prior president was unprecedented, and sometimes that requires some unprecedented means. I don't think we got to go so far to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think pushing the envelope and saying, no, we're going to call them out on this is actually very good for the same reason why the president's use of the bully, the prior president's use of the bully pulpit to spread misinformation was so effective because of the attention it gets. Also worth noting, I don't think it's a coincidence this is happening now. I think we're now in the phase where people are looking to the 2022 election. The Democrats had a full year to try and get chunks of their agenda, their nominees through in Congress, where it's usually there's an inclination to try and focus on substantive matters, um, avoid sort of political overheating. That's, I think, unavoidable in the lead up to the election. And frankly, I think Democrats want to pull Trump into the conversation because Trump being involved is a big motivator for the Democratic base. So I think we're going to hear a lot more people talk about Trump in veiled terms or in less veiled terms. Uh, over the next 11 months we have until the election. The, the last point I, I think it's worth making here is I do think there is this question about the Democratic strategy. And we've seen this a lot of these criticisms saying like Democrats going big, going for election reform, like expanding voting rights and or securing expanded voting rights, um, pushing back against state narrowing of voting rights. And I think that has been the big focus of the Democrats so far. I don't think it's a coincidence though that we're hearing more and more discussion of narrower democratic fixes, like around the Electoral Count Act, like around some of these other measures. These aren't substitutes for that former agenda, um, but that former agenda always had a degree of a normative valence that was going to be a harder sell from a bipartisan basis, because there's always been disagreements about, well, what sort of voting rights should be guaranteed versus, you know, to what extent uh, you're allowed to have certain barriers to voting or how much should federal government be involved with, you know, requiring mail by uh, voting by mail and other sorts of options like that. That's always been a kind of perennial political debate. Then you have things that are really normative breaking, like the efforts to abuse the electoral count process. The latter, I think you may be able to get by more bipartisan motivation around. I kind of suspect Democrats knew that from the outset, which is why they spent the last year and are going to spend the next couple of weeks or months pushing for the more ambitious agenda, trying to use the political capital to get that. 
feeling that, well, if that fails, then we still have a number of months where, frankly, we weren't going to get much of our agenda through anywhere. We can come back to some of those more lower common denominator fixes. And I'm not 100% sure that's the wrong strategy if you accept that Democrats have a legit interest in both securing the fundamental tenet of democracy and advancing their vision of policy. But it is a tricky, tricky needle to thread. And you know, I don't know if we'll ever know 100% what the right path is, because in such a narrowly divided Congress, they're all going to be very hard ones to walk. So I want to use what Scott just said as, as a way of pivoting to the kind of the other half of this, which is, and then Quinta, Quinta mentioned this earlier, which is, okay, speeches are great and, and they're important and they could do all these sorts of things, but what happens next? And what worries me, I'm going to rant now for two minutes and then you can all tell me you know, why I need to calm down. What worries me is exactly what Scott said, which is that the Democrats having you know, spent the first year doing all of their kind of standard social and economic policy priorities that were going to be controversial, um, now have decided that, well, we're not going to get a lot done in the last year. So let's actually turn to, you know, voting in democracy reform, because that'll be somehow easier. Now, now Scott, I mean, I don't, I don't want to unfairly characterize what you said, Scott, but like, you seem okay with that. And like, whereas for me, that makes my head explode, right? You know, if Trump, if Trumpism, if authoritarianism or whatever you want to call it, if it is a dagger at the heart of American democracy, then it is by definition, it is by definition the most important thing. It is by definition the priority. And priorities are things you do first. They're not things you do third or fourth or tenth, right? Once you think that, well, we're not going to get all other stuff done now, so we'll probably get this done now, right? Because that takes a huge risk, right? But if you really think if you really think that we are facing an existential threat to American democracy, right, that has to come first. Otherwise, the whole game is lost. So, like, I kind of want to call bullshit a little bit on either, right, Democratic Party elites think that there, we have a huge, potentially massive threat to American democracy, in which case that is what has to be fixed first before anything else, or you don't, right? But if you don't, don't claim that you do. Like, my head is spinning. Rant over. Why am I all wrong? So, okay. So I don't think you're all wrong, but I th think you're maybe like 50% or 25% wrong. I'll vote 65. And that's low, honestly, <laughs> okay. even 65% wrong is less wrong than I usually am. So I'll take it. I am very sympathetic to your argument and I even agree with most of it, I think. But I do think that the argument that Biden has very explicitly made is that part of saving democracy is showing that democracy can provide for people and allow them to live dignified and fulfilling lives. And I think that was the reasoning behind pursuing the infrastructure bill and the social policy bill first. I think it makes a certain amount of sense, right? I mean, if if what you're trying to if you're trying to explain to people why they should value life under a democracy, part of that has to be, you know, and here are the things you will get from it. I don't find that philosophically satisfying, particularly because it leaves unanswered the big question of, okay, but what is the intrinsic good of democracy? But I do feel like if you're trying to get people to, to fight, to save American democracy, you need to give them something to fight for beyond the abstract. And so I do see something to that, even as I sympathize with what you're saying. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I think, Ellen, you're setting up a bit of a false dichotomy because, and I guess to speak to a point you just made as well, Quinta, I think the the issue is actually not so much needing to convince people that democracy is worth saving. I think that you're right as a rhetorical matter and as a means of unifying a, trying to unify a deeply divided country, it was a valuable strategy for the administration and for Congress with a very narrow majority to try to demonstrate why this is valuable. I think the the problem is that saving democracy requires defining what democracy is. And I think that gets to some of the point that you were making, Alan, which is the way that we are defining democracy is in very big picture, buzzwordy sorts of terms. Um, and is encompassing a whole lot of things. And in my mind, the strategy for actually saving democracy is recognizing what are the building blocks of democracy, many of which are distinctly uninteresting and technocratic and logistical, and that the the better approach is to sort of divide out the rhetorical argument about how we should define democracy and what about democracy is important, for example, the Democrats putting so much emphasis on voting rights. That should be a discussion that's happening, absolutely. In the meantime, I think it is possible to pursue a strategy along the lines of what Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith have proposed with respect to presidential reforms, and that is to try to get at the low-hanging fruit where there is bipartisan consensus or at least less resistance and just sort of chip away at the things that are not likely to get a whole lot of press, not likely to be particularly interesting to people, but really will make a meaningful difference in shoring up our democracy. I think we saw aspects of how democracy actually functions in the last election and in the aftermath that people hadn't really thought about before, like who really paid a whole lot of attention other than experts in the fields to the fact that the decentralization and the overlapping authorities of state and local had a huge impact in the outcomes of how elections would be administered and the fact that it's complicated because it's not uniform and all of these things that are really not all that interesting in the sense that they are not discussed until something exposes the fissures. I think that is where there can and should be the most focus if the goal is to preserve democracy. And all I'll add to that is that I think there's a prevailing just like realist political logic that says that the difficulty of enacting particularly partisan 
and controversial legislation increases over the course of each Congress. Uh, because when you get people in and, and each presidential term on top of that, when you get newly elected people, they've got the most time to their next election. It's their highest tolerance for political risk. Um, their most willingness to vote with their caucus. And so when you have more ideologically divisive items, you tend to front load them because you have the best chance of keeping cohesion in your caucus early in the Congress, early in the presidential administration. And that gets harder and harder as you get closer to the next election. More and more people start feeling pressure to say, oh, I'm independent. I need to appeal to my swing voters. Uh, I have genuine ideological issues with this. And the election's looking tighter moving forward. In contrast, sometimes lower hanging, more technical items and reforms uh, where there is an element of bipartisan support. And you actually don't need a huge chunk of bipartisan support if you can keep keep the Democrats together. But you actually kind of need some to make these things stick from getting too politicized. I think some of those may hang around. So I'm actually not 100% sure the Democrats' bet was wrong on this. To the extent it was wrong, it's that if they don't end up getting any of their bigger democratic reforms they want that advance their vision of democracy versus Republican one, in which case they made a big bet and maybe they lost on that. Um, but that vision, is, I think, is really important. It's one that I tend to agree with. Even if I agree, there needs to be those technical core foundational fixes as well. But I'm not sure the way of, I'm not sure that's actually the edict that if it's the highest priority, you have to do it first, actually holds in political logic. I think that might just lead to suboptimal outcomes in terms of advancing policy and uh, enacting legislation. I don't know. I think we're trying to overall, I think, I think, I, I, look, I, I hear everything you guys are saying, and I think your understanding of politics is probably more sophisticated than mine. But I also think everyone here is trying to over-optimize, Right. If democracy is really under threat, right, if democracy is the thing that allows us to continue playing this game of politics and continue to try to push our policy objectives and whatever they are, Democrat, Republican, you know, left, right, then not focusing on that first when you have the maximum chance of success, when you have the maximum discreditization of Trump at the beginning of 2021, waiting until the end, waiting until the midterms start politicizing everything it just strikes me as is incredibly irresponsible. And I think this is an example of, of how, you know, the Democratic Party in particular, maybe because they have more policy goals, frankly, than the Republican Party does, is just somehow constitutionally incapable of prioritization. It's just like they, they cannot do it. They cannot accept the trade-offs. And I think that they have to honestly either say, we actually don't think that democracy is really under threat, or uh, we did and we're playing, making a huge risk. Um, and, and that they will have to own that risk if things go badly. Well, for better or for worse, I think we're going to have ample opportunity to come back to this topic in future weeks. But in the meantime, talking about overly efficient optimization, Facebook is being sued again, specifically over its efforts to optimize the extent to which people view certain websites on its social media platform. Specifically, in this case, it is being sued in a very sad story by the surviving family member of a police officer or a federal law enforcement official, I should say, who was killed during the uh, protests of 2020, not by anyone associated with the protests, but instead by members of the far-right Boogaloo Boys movement that killed him as well as another, uh, I believe, local law enforcement official as part of an effort to target law enforcement officials and trigger a much broader conflict uh, there in California and nationwide. They're being sued, particularly under a theory by this family member that says, essentially, Facebook is not just replicating third-party content put on it, activity that many of us know and many listeners will know is protected by Section 230, a set of legal protections that's become fairly controversial in recent years, but is in fact 
taking that material as well as other material it's gathered essentially by surveilling its users or purchased on broader demographic databases elsewhere and packaged together with pieces of that third-party provided content into unique packages like the Facebook wall or the news feed and other items. And that through that process of shaping that content can no longer claim its third-party content, the publication of which it is protected from uh, liability for legally by Section 230. Quinta, you have done a lot of great work on Section 230. Let me turn to you first. Does this sound like the sort of thing that can get around Section 230 protections, or is this an effort to make a sort of lawsuit happen that has failed too many times elsewhere to be plausible here? I said pretty strongly with the latter, and I'm also interested to hear what Alan thinks. So... Reading the lawsuit, it seems to me like this is pretty in line with other complaints that have been filed, other lawsuits that have been filed against platforms like Facebook and Twitter by family members of people injured or killed in attacks that have some link to those platforms, which didn't go anywhere. So, for example, in Force versus Facebook, uh, which had to do with, I believe, a Hamas terrorist attack, the Second Circuit ruled that... Uh, the lawsuit against Facebook was precluded by Section 230. And notably, and I do think that this is important, that included uh, the algorithmic design that Facebook used. Um, so to the extent that this this lawsuit is focused on the specifics of, of uh, Facebook's algorithm, that was addressed by the Second Circuit in force, and they found that Section 230 um, that that was included in Section 230 protection. Now, of course, it's a California state court. It's not in the Second Circuit. Um, all these things, you know, okay, that's fair. However, um, it is also true that there is a Ninth Circuit decision, yes, in the, in the federal level, but still, Gonzalez versus Google, which also found that Section 230 precluded a lawsuit against Google, Facebook, and Twitter over a number of ISIS terrorist attacks on similar reasoning to force. So. I find it pretty hard to see how how this lawsuit can get around those. Now, as you say, Scott, the, the idea may be to just drive a bulldozer right through them and ask the this California state court to set up a, a real tussle over what's happening here. The one sort of glimmer that I see that I found interesting is that so the the specifics of the complaint. They're suing on negligence, which I think is something that I, I think probably would be precluded by Section 230, but they're also suing on the basis of negligent design by Facebook in terms of how it designed its its algorithms and its groups function. Carrie Goldberg, who is a, a civil litigator who files uh, many lawsuits on behalf of victims of sexual assault or abuse or harassment, has been putting forward this interesting theory that Section 230 doesn't apply to cases of product design. And she tried that in a case, Herrick versus Grinder. Um, it wasn't successful, but I think there is a stronger case that 230 doesn't apply to product design cases as opposed to uh, treating a platform like a publisher. So I am I'm skeptical. Uh, Alan and Scott, tell me why I'm wrong. So I, I don't think you're I don't think you're wrong in the sense that look, if Section 230 was settled law and we weren't having a giant set of debates about it in Congress, you know, among academics, even among some judges about what it means, then yes, I, I think you'd be totally right. And that this lawsuit is just, it's too similar to the other lawsuit, to Forrest, the other Ninth Circuit stuff, 
to you know all of 230 doctrine for the last several decades for it to have legs and and look Carrie Goldberg is a great lawyer right and like lawyers come up with very clever new arguments and the, the negligent design thing is an interesting argument but ultimately these are like it's all kind of the same thing right but I, I don't think that's the world we live in anymore, which is to say, right, I think that over the last several years, I hate to use this term, but I think it is useful, the Overton window on, you know, Section 230, not just as a matter of what it, you know, should do, but also actually what it means as a question of statutory interpretation has shifted quite dramatically, right? Um, you know, you have Justice uh, Thomas in a recent Supreme Court case that this was totally dicta, this had nothing to do with 230, but kind of wrote a little law review article, basically, in an opinion of his saying, actually, I think Section 230 has been misinterpreted ever since the Fourth Circuit's opinion in Zoran, um, which, you know, vastly exceeded, you know, vastly expanded its scope. And that, you know, we don't need to change Section 230, we just have to read it the way that Congress intended it when it was passed in the 1990s. Under that reading, I think lawsuit like the Boogaloo case and, and other similar lawsuits would easily pass uh, through. And so I, I think, from the perspective of judges, who I think it's always important to remind ourselves are just people too, right? They read the same newspapers as we do. They watch the same TV as, as you know, the rest of us do. Deciding a Section 230 cases, especially because there isn't authoritative Supreme Court case law on it, I think they can feel a lot freer to look at their past decisions, look at decisions of other circuits or their own circuit and say, I don't know, did we really get this right? And only takes one case right? One circuit split for this to go to the Supreme Court. And I have absolutely no idea um, how the Supreme Court will will rule. It could go in a million different directions. But what I do suspect is that the dominant interpretation of Section 230, the Fourth Circuit Zoran maximalist one, I'd be surprised if that one, if, if, if that was the one the Supreme Court wholeheartedly embraced. So I think the, the verdict's still very much out on this and other types of lawsuits. Yeah, I'll agree with Alan on that generally. Uh, but in, in particular, I think this case is actually pushing beyond where these earlier cases have gone for a very specific technical reason I kind of alluded to into the introduction that's worth drilling in on here. And it's interesting because you have to look at the facts alleged in the complaint, which uh, compared to these other cases, which of course is kind of like the basis on which motions to dismiss are dissolved, right? It's not like the actual facts of the world, it's the facts as alleged. This complaint really makes a really big deal out of Facebook taking in not only the information provided by the users on Facebook, but actually inf other information it proactively acquires and develops itself by monitoring users' behavior and building profiles of them and combining them that, I believe, combining that with third-party material. Um, and says it combines that and uses that to build this profile on the basis of which it then pushes content and generates content for those people and makes the point that what it's giving is not third-party content. What it's giving these people is a pastiche that includes elements of third-party content, um, but that also includes a lot of original material motivated by design by Facebook using this third-party information. That's actually not something quite alleged in either Gonzalez or Force as far as I was able to read them, although I admit I read the opinions, not the complaint in preparation for this. So I should go back and look at the actual complaints. They talk about the algorithms. They talk about the algorithms in terms of pushing information, they don't talk about using third-party information to generate new sorts of approaches. Now, I'm not sure that's a winner, but I do think it's a basis by which you can distinguish this argument from those prior arguments. It's worth noting the uh, individual in question here, the plaintiff is being represented by Cohen Milstein, like a very well-regarded, very reputable, progressive, you know, essentially appellate firm, not just appellate firm, litigation firm. And so it's a really serious set of lawyers that clearly spent a lot of time on this complaint. It's a very good complaint in that regard. 
So I don't think there's just the historical moment part, although I think Alan's right about that, that there's a little bit of a different context here that certain judges may be more sensitive to. There's also actually, I think, a legal argument to be made about why this is at least different for those prior cases. Now, does that mean it's so different as to change the legal outcome? I, I don't know, because we're basically existing on a spectrum where like, on one end, you have a GeoCities page put up by a third-party user. That is 100% clearly what 230 was thinking about in terms of protecting GeoCities from liability for. And on the far other end of the spectrum, you have you know the version of a, a hostage note uh, from an old movie, right, where each individual letter was cut out from a magazine, uh, and they and the website has rearranged them so they can say, oh yeah, letter A was from user one two three over here, letter B was from user X Y Z, and we've just taken these together, and collectively it's all still third party content, no matter how we arrange it. That seems to push the concept of third party concept further further out to its limit, well beyond what Section 230 was intended to protect. This is happening along a spectrum between the two. But I do think it's part of the spectrum we really haven't seen scrutinized by a case that I'm aware of yet that makes these specific allegations. So I do think it's notable in that regard. And again, as, as Alan noted, Quint, as you alluded to, no binding precedent on this. Um, all the other decisions are strictly persuasive. I don't believe certain states do say that their interpretations of federal law are bound by like lower court opinions in their relevant uh, circuit. I don't think California does. So I believe that it will be approaching these issues de novo. Everything else is just persuasive. Um, so we'll we'll have, take an original crack at the bat on this, unless there's some California state law I'm not aware of, which is, which is possible. Yeah, I found myself wondering the same thing, namely whether the fact that this is in California state court will be meaningful difference. And I'm also not familiar, you know, whether 230 is an absolute bar, this wouldn't speak to, but to the extent it's part of the analysis, you know, I don't know enough about California negligence law to know whether these claims are also meaningfully different, especially, and one thing that interested me in particular about this was the idea that uh, because as Quinto, you were saying, there is the negligent design aspect of it, to the extent that courts have really struggled over the idea that algorithms are too sort of mathematical in nature to represent sort of conduct for which there can be liability. Just, I guess I just wonder whether the algorithms that have been challenged before are a different type of algorithm in a sense that courts have to look at it differently on the theme of the design negligence claim rather than the just liability. I I will say reading this new complaint alongside the opinion in force, and I, I'm also with Scott here, I have not looked at the actual briefing, so I'm not sure of the specifics of what was alleged in terms of the role of Facebook's algorithm, but the this new complaint has a huge advantage over the plaintiffs in force, which is that Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, released a huge amount of information to the Wall Street Journal and to other publications and to the public about the specifics of various algorithms at Facebook and how they worked. And so the plaintiffs are really able to take this and incorporate it into their complaint and make a really detailed case about, you know, what went in, what went out. And I think that that may allow them to make that point that you were making, Scott, about, you know, Facebook is adding its own special sauce to the mix. And that means that this isn't uh, just a, a case of hosting third party content. Whereas I wonder whether, you know, I'm looking at least in the just in the opinion and force, it's kind of it's higher level. They're sort of just 
talking about what the definition of an algorithm is, right? It's totally possible that what they're describing in force, which has to do with, you know, the algorithm that suggests people you may know, that also involve Facebook's special sauce. And we we just don't really know. But I do think that the the focus on the algorithm does seem to be a increasing uh, theme in conversations around Facebook um, and around platform governance. I think because it was to such a great extent a focus of the material that Haugen brought forward and and of her testimony. And I also think there's, there's kind of an appeal to it for lawmakers who might otherwise be a bit queasy about, you know, telling a platform how to regulate speech that it seems like, aha, you know, we can just look at the algorithm. That's that's a way around the First Amendment. Don't even worry about it. But of course, that's that's not the case. And so I do wonder whether the algorithm is kind of the new shiny thing in the room that everyone's going to be focusing on. I, I do think, you know, like I, like I said, Scott, I think there may be something there. Um, I know Benjamin Wittes, he's talked about whether or not you could have some kind of a carve out to 230 for particular kinds of algorithmic rankings, you know, other than just straightforward reverse cron. But I don't know. So we'll see. I will be very interested to see if this does go somewhere. And it will be particularly interesting, I think, to see whether this focus on algorithms sticks around or whether it is kind of a flash in the pan and we return to other ways of thinking about platform governance. Yeah. And Quinta, on the theme of the algorithms, I guess one thing that is interesting to me is whether there can be a distinction drawn between algorithms that are designed for the purpose of affirmatively recommending to people that they have membership in groups and whether in combination with negligence um, and, you know, The Guardian, for example, had a really interesting piece documenting all of the warnings that were out there specifically about the Boogaloo groups, including ones that were at issue, indirect issue here um, that were being used for, if not for planning, at least for amping up the rhetoric that was the motivation behind this murder. Whether the, the, the duty that was established and whether the warnings that were there demonstrating a knowledge of the, the real world risk whether those two things can marry up in a way that's unique to this case. Just one other point just to, to flag here that I think it's worth noting. Uh, this case, as Quinta mentioned, it takes place under California state, under California state tort law. So it's actually kind of different from a lot of the other cases we've seen encountering this question that are often pursued under the Anti-Terrorism Act, related to international terrorism, um, where there's actually like pretty broad causes of action relating back to material support or similar principles like that, that aren't that hard to draw factual, at least plausible factual connections to. Here, there's actually a bit of a bigger hurdle. I don't know because you'd have to know California tort law better than I do, meaning at all. Uh, But they do have to come out to the point where they can say like, Facebook actually had an affirmative duty to address some of these issues that it fell short on, was negligent in pursuing. And so it strikes me as a little more complicated legal question that might end up providing alternative grounds of this issue going away without reaching Section 230, potentially, um, different in some ways. And some of the ATA cases, although some ATA cases have gone away on other grounds like proximate causation. So uh, long story short, we will have to wait and see. But an interesting case worth keeping your eyes peeled to. Well, that brings us to the end of our time for this week. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to consider as you go about your work. Alan, want to hand it over to you first. So my object lesson is 91,500 
oil-covered pennies. And these pennies were dropped uh, on the driveway of uh, a former employee of a, uh, I think, auto repair shop uh, in Georgia. And this uh, employee complained to the Department of Labor saying that the employer uh, was withholding the paycheck and the employer was very upset. So he took the amount in question, $915, converted into 91,500 pennies, apparently poured some motor oil on it and then dumped it on the driveway of the employee. And now the employer is being sued by the Department of Labor for retaliation. So my object lesson because I think this is a great story, is either the 91,500 pennies or just the single solitary penny. Because I think it is time for all of us to agree that as much as we all love Abraham Lincoln, the penny is an abomination and needs to be gotten rid of. Turns out that it actually costs more to make the penny in terms of the copper involved than a penny. So every time you make or use a penny, you are destroying value. Uh, And so I I think that this is yet another piece of evidence for why we need to get rid of pennies. Though they are, I will say, a very pleasant color. And I can imagine that a pile of almost 100,000 of them might look nice, though I wouldn't want an oil-soaked pile on my driveway. I will say that I think the most incredible thing about the story, apart from the pennies themselves, is the fact that according to the New York Times, after the story started making local news, the the employer uh, started messaging people trying to figure out how to spin it because apparently he didn't figure out that dumping 91,500 oil-covered pennies on his former employee's driveway as retaliation for not paying him would make him look bad. That's just incredible. I just want someone to. I want there to be a lawsuit over the penny, so that somewhere in the in the uh, legal reports, there's a case called Inri nine one thousand five hundred oil soaked pennies. That would be awesome. Someone please do that in Georgia. But the magistrate's going to have to count them. That's the thing. It's going to be a disaster. <laughs> magistrate's like, I'm not Article Two, but I did not sign up for this shit. <laughs> exactly. Good luck. Article Three, that is. I know which article is in the Constitution for which for which for which part. Pop just, quiz. Guys, I'm done. I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> Q, go ahead. While we turn to you for our next object lesson. Well, speaking of legal cases, see what I did there. My object lesson is Justice Neil Gorsuch's mask, or more specifically, his lack of a mask. The Supreme Court has started hearing arguments. In person, very exciting. Over the last several days of hearings, the justices have all filed into the courtroom wearing masks, except for Justice Gorsuch, not wearing a mask. And notably, Justice Sotomayor, who sits next to him and has diabetes, which is a risk factor for COVID-19, was not in person during that first oral argument. And today... We're recording on uh, January 11th. Justice Stephen Breyer, who sits near Justice Gorsuch, was also phoning in, presumably from his chambers, perhaps because he's he's read the studies about uh, COVID-19 being being airborne. So I would just like to say, Justice Gorsuch, put on a mask. It's the least you can do. Come on, man. You have a lifetime appointment. Just just put it on. Frankly, everybody who likes Justice Gorsuch should be rooting for him to put on a mask because of that lifetime appointment. So, you know, this is the one <laughs> place point. where even everybody, no matter how conservative you are, should be on board with him putting on that mask. Well, for my object lesson, we are back 
to booze week. Uh, having done a non-booze and food-related object lesson last week, I will say this one is particularly important to me because I am doing dry January, and so I've not had a drink for a while and need one extremely badly. So I will live vicariously through you uh, as I share my object lesson for this week, which is the follow-up to one of my very first object lessons, where I ask one of my favorite YouTube cocktail makers to help present me with a cocktail that combines alcohol and caffeine so that I can stay up past 9 p.m. on the rare nights where I get to enjoy a social occasion. Um, I didn't hear directly back from them, but they actually released a pretty good cocktail recipe that I will uh, share in the show notes that is uh, a, a an espresso martini, not that interesting in and of itself, although it's a pretty good one, but he actually makes it with brandy instead of vodka, uh, which I, I tried and actually really quite liked for New Year's and thought I would pass along. But more importantly, perhaps, I think I have found an even more superior evening caffeinated cocktail beverage uh, that is delightfully simple that I thought I would share with you that centers on Averna, uh, a very unique Sicilian Amaro made of burnt uh, orange peel is the suspicion. Oh, I think it's a secret recipe. It's something anyone actually knows. Um, that's quite delicious and usually prettily available and a little more boozy than a lot of other Amaros. I have started putting this in coffee and it is phenomenal. And actually it gives it just a nice edge. Think of it as like kind of a sophisticated Irish coffee. That's phenomenal if you're having a boozy brunch in the morning or you have to stay up a little later and socialize in the evening. I highly recommend it. The only downside is you put in the right amount, it actually cools down because your coffee shouldn't be boiling. So if you put in some like lukewarm liquor, it cools it down so much that so you add a little more hot water in and make it with strong coffee. So I recommend two parts strong, dark, boil, hot coffee, one part of Arena, one part boiling water to bring the temperature back up and a little bit of lemon peel twisted across the top, and it is phenomenal and highly recommended. I'm changing your lives for you. Try it, and you will love it. You're welcome, listener. Yes, the one listener who will actually try this. <laughs> the one listener who will try it. I will say, I think I had a few people respond to me, and one of them may have actually recommended this in hindsight, and I forgot about it, but I have like this tingle of, of recognition. So if you did mention a verita to me, thank you in advance for uh, helping me uh, arrive at and uh, locate this wonderful beverage. But I hope you all enjoy. I'll be back with you, to you with a non-food and booze object lesson next week. And everyone place your bets as to whether Rational Security 2.0 will also spawn a spinoff show. Rational Security 2.0 hosts opine on all things culinary and drink. While watching movies. While watching movies. Oh exactly. That'd be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> the dream. Um, so my object lesson is literary in air quotes in nature. Um, and that is inspired by the fact that I am at my parents' house with my son um, and husband. He is here too, but my son is the one relevant to the story. We discovered a box of books, um, children's books from my childhood, um, one of which was the 1980s cult classic, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which some of you may recall. So I had occasion and have since had occasion, I think every single night, at least once, to reread Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And for those of you who are not familiar with the very charming story, it involves a faraway land in which everything is pretty normal, just like any other little town, except instead of food stores and restaurants, they have meals that come down from the sky as weather for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So everything is proceeding along just fine until suddenly everything takes a turn for the worse. And what happens is that the food keeps getting bigger and bigger 
and it destroys the town and it closes the school and people can't keep up with things. The sanitation department gives up and everyone is forced to flee. So I've decided, or I should say, I've discovered that this 1980s classic from my childhood is actually about climate change. And what happened in the tiny town of, I should mention, is it is called Chew and Swallow. What happened in Chew and Swallow was, in fact, a crisis that was caused by climate change that forced mass migration of the entire population on their boats that were made of giant food. I would just like to say, as a uh, as a formerly very pudgy little kid, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was and remains my favorite children's book of all time. And I have my own delightfully pudgy infant who's not quite reading age yet, but I cannot wait until he is old enough to explore the adventures of the good people of Chew and Swallow. Also, they made a delightful movie, actually, uh, a few years ago, um, which uh, is uh, you know not as good as the book, but is uh, remarkably pretty good, actually. Uh, worth watching, especially if you have a child. Well, Alan, just make sure you save that for the movie spinoff podcast. Sure. <laughs> And I think it actually, the movie actually leans more into the climate change sort of narrative, as I recall. It's definitely like, actually hits it like as squarely as you can when you're talking about meatballs. Um, I could be wrong. That's that's my recollection. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com, or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we once again are edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 